coming up on the Building a Coaching Culture podcast. Get that reputation of being a place to work, a place that grows future leaders. It's kind of thinking like that, thinking outside of the box. And we don't have to be huge companies to do that either. You're listening to the Building a Coaching Culture podcast. If you need to compete and win in the 21st century labor market as an employer of choice, this podcast is for you. Each week, we share leadership development, coaching, and culture development insights from leading experts who are developing world-class cultures in their own organizations. And now, here's your host, J.R. Flatter. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm J.R. Flatter, and this is Building a Coaching Culture. As always, I'm here with my distinguished co-host, Mr. Lucas. Hello. He's our millennial voice. I'm the boomer voice. I'm not sure where you fall into that intergenerational thing, KK. I'm just saying the middle. <laughs> Let's leave it at that. <laughs> okay, that's fair. Remind everybody why we're here, who our listeners are, leaders of complex organizations, competing and succeeding in the 21st century labor market, becoming employers of choice. So Lucas and I and KK, you're in this business as well, helping people grow their leadership, grow their cultures. And here in the 21st century, what does that mean? We think it's a coaching style of leadership. It's a coaching culture. So that's where we're here. We're communicating and educating those folks. So with that said, I'll toss it over to you, KK. I'm looking at your profile on LinkedIn and you got a couple of different titles there. Coach, psychologist, executive coach, a DEI upstander. But I'm sure there's a lot more to you than those three things. So Oh, the floor yeah. is yours. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here with you. I'm here in the UK, so it's around four o'clock UK time. So it's a good timing because I have my last client about 30 minutes ago. So very good time timing. I am an executive coach for a coaching organization who specializes in DEI type of coaching. And I am a business coach psychologist as well. So I like to go a little bit deeper into the psyche of people, employees' behavior, and to kind of really unlayer what's really happening and what's happened to help them develop their leadership, which is so important in that whole 21st century leadership, you know, as a DEI expert as well. And I'd say a DEI upstander is more what it's about. You know, I'm very curious and I, I do believe in standing up for those that have been marginalized. And it's very interesting because as I have worked with hundreds of clients, hundreds of people with the individuals, and and I see how What's going on is there's, yes, there's marginalization in organizations, but I find that quite often people have taken that, these, these, this marginalization, this attitude, these sound bites and applied it to their lives, which has inhibited them from having that personal autonomy to succeed. And so that's been very interesting for me. Yeah, that's incredible. We have family in the United Kingdom, so maybe we'll, have, we'll catch up one of these days when we're over there. I try to get over there a couple of times a year. Yes, definitely. We were just there a couple of weeks ago in the Cotswolds. Oh, wow. My colleague, he just bought a small, lovely place in the Cotswolds. It looks incredible. I haven't been, but it is definitely incredible. So my, my whole, what I do 
it kind of moves around. Yes, I'm a coach, but I'm going deep below the layers. And then I'm looking at that DE&I, the importance of leaders embracing it, not as a tick box exercise, but as something that is, we know is beneficial to an organization. Yeah, I'm going to introduce you to one of the coaches in our cohort right now. Lucas and I teach a, an ongoing cohort, a few hundred people from all over the world. And one of the young coaches is in that same DEI vein. So I think you and she might be worthwhile to connect you. If I'm a leader of a complex organization competing in the 21st century, I'm a CEO and I think I know I need a coach. I know I need something more than what I have. What is the value proposition that you would bring to me? How would we engage with you? Well, I think the thing is we do a little bit of an investigation, see what your needs are, see if you can see what you need, right? So we'd explore that, you know, we'd explore what you're hoping to gain from the relationship, you know, is it a specific area? Is it a few different development areas? So it'd be about exploration to see if we can work together, I think that's the most important thing first, because each leader is individual and each leader has their own style of leadership. And we have to explore what that leadership is and has it been effective as well so far? And if it hasn't been, are you aware of what's not working? Are you aware of, say, your emotional intelligence? You know, do we need to pump that up? Do we need to unveil these blind spots? So it really would be that conversation of you know, what your needs are. Sure. So DEI, that conversation has changed a lot over the past couple of years. What kind of changes do you see happening recently and where do you think it's going in the future? That's an interesting question because those couple of years have a lot to do with the Black Lives Matter movement really ramping up. And because of the death of George Floyd, there's been lots of unnecessary deaths But what it did was it caused everyone to say, you know, enough's enough. We've got something's not right here. It also gave voices to those. If we just speak on a corporate level, it gave voices to others who said, you know what? I'm not being treated fairly here. You know, my leaders aren't really hearing me. My voice has been silenced. So I think that's been a very good thing. That's been a good thing for those who want and desire their voices to be heard. I think that's a very good thing. I think that the drawback to it has been, it has been a tick box exercise. And uh, working with the company I work with now, a lot of companies coming through, they're not doing the tick box exercise because they've been on this journey. It becomes the tick box exercise when they have not been on this journey. So it causes the people at the office to say, am I just put in this leadership program? Because we have like, say, underrepresented groups. A lot of them will be called underrepresented groups are going through a leadership program. Even right there, the name is kind of problematic, you know, but they've never been offered this and say, take the person she's never been offered this and she's worked for the top organization for 15 years. And then finally, she's getting this opportunity or we take a number of these people, 10, 15 people. And quite often in my room, they do feel like it's a tick box exercise. And it may be. But I also want to say that we have a lot of people in talent and development and a lot of people in HR who this gave them the opportunity to push things forward that they believed in, that they wanted to see change. So where is it going? 
I think organizations are being held to their word. And that takes us to this, the younger generation is expecting an organization to be diverse. They'll look on these sites, they'll check and they'll check reviews. They will really check and see, you know, maybe Lucas, you, you can relate. It's like, is this organization living up to what they say they're all about? And when they come in, they're quick to jump. They're quick to jump. So I think the future is organizations need to mean and do what they say they're going to do and take serious action, take serious action. And I know budgets are built over two, five-year periods of time, but if they don't take action, significant action, they're going to be left behind. Mm, That's an interesting thought. I read a book called The Inevitable, and it's 12 things that are inevitable in the next 30 years. And the author is the founder of Wired Magazine, so he focuses a little bit more on IT than I might. But I think we've just identified the 13th thing on his list. If you don't get this right, you're getting left behind. I love that. So I read in your uh, bio that you, and I'm going to quote here, deep and sometimes painful exploration. So talk to me about that. If I engage with you, I'm going to be in a deep and sometimes painful exploration. <laughs> you got a big <laughs> smile on your face. Something's going not, on here. <laughs> I'm not a sadist. I'm not a sadist. Well, if we were working together, right, JR, and you brought some real stuff to the table, if we're working together and you're making a commitment to bring it all, to be fearless, to bring it all, to show up authentically in the moment, you know, on that day, and what's happening today. And sometimes maybe what's happening today is heavy and maybe it's to do with how you're showing up and how people are putting the mirror to you and it's not feeling good. If you're willing to explore that, then we might be tapping into some painful history, you know, that we have to look at from that psychological perspective. It's we're looking at potentially a painful experience early in the career what started to shape you as a leader, who were the bad actors who exemplified what they thought was leadership, right? And so then we start discovering that maybe, you know, maybe it was, you've been embarrassed. Maybe you've been humiliated in a conference early in in your career. And I'm going to say gender specific to you at this very moment, that as a man, you do come off as uh, quite alpha, I have to say, <laughs> alpha male. You know, that's <laughs> to, to share something painful may bring up something that's uncomfortable, right? But if you're willing to do it, therein lies the transformation. So, yeah, it's painful. And I've had this one alpha, I call him an alpha, you know, booming voice, really tearing a lot of pain for seven years. He was carrying some some trauma. I've labeled it some career trauma. You know, he was carrying some career trauma and it was painful as sitting in my position because I could see, come on, just break through, break through. But you can't tell somebody to do something. You can just keep sure. holding that mirror up thin. And he was tears and he held those tears back. And that was that painful moment. But then something, something happened six months later. He just got it. And he was willing to accept how he was showing up and he made others feel because of his pain. And that was like, oh, for me, it was like, oh, we got through. We got through. 
I'm laughing because uh, Lucas knows I'm a teddy bear. Oh, is that <laughs> is this true? <laughs> I'm kidding. Okay, All right, right Lucas, Alpha. You, <laughs> 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 right, right. Um, right. So speaking of what we just talked about, you know, with somebody that you know they might have that defensive posture. Is there any way that you have with experience of kind of breaking through that? Because I guess when people hear that maybe they're doing something wrong or doing something that might be hurting other people's feelings or something, sometimes you want to say, oh, that's not me. It's just everyone else is sensitive or something. So how do you kind of combat that? Well, they come to that. The coachee will come to seeing that through for lack of a better word, through interrogation, to me, kept questioning, asking those open questions. And then there's the aha moments, right? So then they start coming to it. And I think with any relationship, right, over time, that trust is really built. And then finally, you start hearing the other stuff, the stuff that they're not telling you for three months. And then you're hearing it. And then it starts coming. Because see, when people come and they want transformation, they're generally carrying a lot. And there's the defensive posture, as you put it, that's up there for a while and until they're to a point where they can't contain it anymore. It's like the scaffolding starts to fall, right? So how do I do it? Well, they come to it. I will push though. I will, when I see opportunities to go deep, then I'll take it as long as they can take it, right? It's asking the questions. You've said that, can I ask you a question? You know, can I ask you this? Yes. And they're giving them the choice to respond, right? That's how you do it. Can I take us back to some somewhere? You said, what did you say? 30 years, something you said 30 years ago or something like that. But anyways, it triggered off the idea of diversity management. Now that there was an article, a, a university article, or academic, I should say, article that was written. And I think it was in 1980 or something like that. It was definitely not 1990. It was around 1980. It was the first time that diversity management, the term of diversity management came into the awareness. And it was a warning in this article. They had done the research. They had done the data. Things had changed. We moved from women's rights. This was in America. Women's rights. Black people, people of color having rights. And so what they noticed was that Okay, and these people are becoming educated and these people are getting jobs. And so by the year two, I think it was Diversity Management 2000. That was the title, I think, of the article. And so they could see what was coming was that we were going to have more women and more people of color that was going to become, they were going to surpass the dominant male, white male group. And so that was when that first term came about. And I always find it interesting, particularly, Lucas, as you pointed out, the last two years, how they could see that coming in 2000, and yet we're still not where we need to be 22 years or 20 years, and we talked two years ago, 20 years past that, which leads me to believe we still got a ways to go. However, 21st century digital world we live in, things are moving faster. So that's what I say. What I'm talking about is if you don't get it now, really, where are you going to be in a decade? Where are you going to be in a decade? Where are you going to be in 20 years if you don't respond and become more emotionally intelligent? 
If you keep thinking that the way you're working is all right, then you're in trouble. So let me give you an example. I'm doing a women's and leadership program and we're running 18 women every month or so for a big manu- for a big um, FMCG, right? Company. And their aim is by 2025 to have 40% women in senior leadership positions. So we are ramp- they are ramping it up. But they've been working on this for eight years, right? So this is part of an eight. They've hired the company that I work for for eight years. They've been bringing in women in leadership. And they've got 12% to go before they get the 40%. Why are they doing it? Because they know if they don't get this right, they are going to be left behind. And the industry that they're in has changed as well hugely cigarette just tobacco industry so it's really changed but however there's still resistance you know we have the white male who wants to keep going the same way they've been going but the company sees we better change or we will again get left behind and i think that's important because they've got a head start to a lot of other organizations so you know you hit me spot on them alpha white male, and I run a complex global organization. I take this on board as a a requirement, as a a necessity, not because we're forced to, because it's a good thing. It's uh, the future. But I also have the sense of, I don't know what I don't know. And grew up in a town of 250 people and came up through the military and now end up here as an entrepreneur. I need help from somebody like you. In a lot of cases, I don't think it's malice. I don't suspect that it's malice. I think that it's, we don't know what we don't know. And when you say you don't think it's malice, can we explore that a little bit? Are you talking about, what are you talking about? You don't think what's malice? It's not malice on my behalf if I'm not as diverse as I need to be. It's not something I'm waking up in the morning and saying, I'm glad I'm not diverse. It might be the case in a lot of people, but I also suspect that it's not in a lot of other cases. I would agree with you. And I think that's part of the reason there might be resistance. Yeah. No, that was a good point there. You think that it might be resistance. Are you saying that there might be resistance to this kind of change because it's almost like society saying, you got a problem, you're you're a racist or you're this or you're a misogynist or is yeah, that exactly. what you're kind of getting exactly. at? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. How do you handle something like that? Being a boomer, as you say, how do you manage that? Well, I think it's like you've described earlier, it's a conscious, purposeful effort to grow your team and to be the strongest team it can be. And in some ways, it's a whole of nation, not just a corporate by corporate challenge. Because in labor economics, there are ideas of self-selection and ideas of educational requirements and ideals of experience requirements. And so I'm competing in the same labor market you are. And are there the people that I want and need available? Has the nation produced them? Are we telling them when they're four years old rather than when they're 40 years old? That's right. Um, That's right. It's a very complex, multi-layered challenge. Right. This is why, so for example, the Women in Leadership Program, right, that we're running, multiple of them. They're trying to get them into this position or what have you. The benefit though of these particular individuals is they have had many years in the business, right? 
So they've got a lot of experience. And that's really good because we can say that they'll get to those positions based on merit, right? So they've got it. They're, they're high flyers, high potential people. So we know they're going to earn that place. I think what organizations can do is look at their recruitment, right? The early recruitment, because most, or if you're a big organization, you probably have a graduate program coming through. Is that right? So, you know, if you have a graduate program and everything, you want to look at your recruitment. If you keep using the same recruitment firm that's not delivering diverse candidates, then that's where you start there. Or you look at that company and say, this is what I need you to do. I need to go to those universities. I need you to find those key people, those winners. Let's go out. Let's go further afield. See, it's easy to your recruitment say, okay, they've got the same pool. They know who to go to. Makes life easy for them, right? But you're paying them. So where is it that I can do the best that I can? You know, it may not be today that I'm able to necessarily find that diversity that I'm seeking right now for certain roles. However, I can build them up. I can build the pipeline, right? And so that to me is what you want to be thinking about as well. If you get lucky and you find the people, that's great. Yeah, I agree completely with what you're saying. And that's why I think, and you're right, you're spot on. Start growing them from, I think you go all the way back to STEM, to be honest with you. When I think about STEM and you got to get them when they're eight years old, 10 years old, 12 years old, before they've decided what's cool. If they've already decided STEM isn't cool, you're not going to get them. You got to talk to them before. So that's why I say, when I say whole of nation, Are we going back far enough to begin the pipeline? If you start the pipeline at when they're entry level, there's some influence you can have. There's a significant amount of influence you can have if you're big enough to influence who shows up at the end of the pipeline. I love that idea. Yeah. And, you know, when we invest in anyone, you know, I'm a mother. When you invest in the right way, you'll get a return. You'll get a return. Even if you, you invested in someone and they're high fly, the high potential, and then they just get this confidence and they leave you after five, 10 years. That's a shame. But at the same time, you know, you're putting them out. They're going out into the world, right? Being built up and being an asset. So it's understanding that you may not win them and keep them there for 20 years or 15 years or whatever, but you're still getting them out there. And it just works like that, right? And the reputation is built as that place for people to work. They want to work there. Then you get the awards and everything like that. It's what are you putting in? There's this one organization, I think it's called Girls Who Code, for example. And there's all STEM kind of based. So Girls Who Code, I think it's Black women who put this together. But there's organizations that are out there. So it's just doing a little bit of research and finding out where are these organizations and they are out there and then being connected. You know, they're 11, 12, 13. You're not having them today, but maybe you're investing some time. Maybe you're going back to society like that, saying, we need you. We want you keep going. Or you build a scholarship in your organization. You know, that's a wonderful thing to do. Get that reputation of being a place to work, a place that grows future leaders. It's kind of thinking like that, thinking outside of the box. And we don't have to be huge companies to do that either. A company of my size, we do grow our leaders from within. The idea that you're really giving me today, and I'm sorry we're walking all over Lucas here, 
is that not just to look at my work team as it's snapshot today, but look at my pipeline. That's the first time I put those two dots together. So thanks, coach. That's an amazing insight because it's true. You got to grow before they're, they're in the labor market to hire. That's why I say in many ways, it's a whole of nation. It's a whole of nation discussion because are we getting people interested at the right time in their life so that when it comes time to choose, they're choosing? Because in many ways, do you see yourself in that role as even in the realm of the possible when you're 12 years old? So how do we begin planting realms of the possible soon enough that by the time they get to the decision points, they're making decisions that'll eventually get them there? Or you and I as employers are making purposeful investments. I love your word to make those awarenesses in the realms of the possible that lead to the outcomes we need. I think, JR, in society, what we're having is we have this, I want it now mentality. I want it now. Everything should change today. Well, that's childish behavior, right? Though I want it now. And if you're not giving it to me now, then you're crap. You're getting canceled. Well, again, that's an immature behavior. It's stepping back and saying, like I've said, it's where can we start? Where can we start? Where can we commit? What type of investment can I make? But as you say that, I've been reminded several times in my own thoughts of Dr. King's letter from Birmingham jail. How long should I wait? Right? So you're, we're both agreeing, I think, that it's an investment over time. But then when do we start saying, okay, the investment should have been paying off and, and here we are or not? Yeah, it's an amazing idea. Based on all that, it it sounds like, you know, the messaging and the media has a role in this because it's it's what are people hearing about your company? What are people hearing about the realm of the possible? So what responsibility do the companies have of like broadcasting their DEI policies and, you know, to attract potential people? Well, You'll see in an advertisement for a job, it will say we are equal opportunity employer, right? So something like that grabs the attention of a diverse candidate in whatever format takes, you know, from neurodiversity, LGBTQ+, people of color, women. So right there, that right there will make the candidate say, hmm, that's important. So now let's talk about that broadcasting it out there. I think we have to be very mindful about broadcasting to the world. You know, we're like raising the flag for DE&I. It can look, it, it, it can just backfire, right? Because people are skeptical, you know, we don't want that. But what we can do, again, is if we take the example of, of going to an event held by girls who code, right? We can then have our media show up on LinkedIn and show that we were at this girls who code. And then the blurb is we are looking to invest in future talent, future diverse talent or female talent, whatever. So we're doing it in a way that is tasteful, you know, that's tasteful, but it is saying to the world, we're doing what we're going to do. And then you're living by that. And then what does that look like in the organization too? Yeah, you've reminded me about when we talk about humility. So for us, we build houses of leadership with our leaders. And one of the enabling characteristics is humility. If you try to tell the world you're humble, 
It really rings hollow, right? <laughs> you got to demonstrate that you're humble. And I, I hear a vein of that in your comments that you don't have to brag to the world that you're DE and I, but you got to demonstrate to the world that you are. But while I'm saying that, I also know that culture is the story the world tells about you. The culture is based a lot on perception. And what's the story they're telling about you? Are they telling that you are an employer who celebrates diversity or not? Is your team telling the world, it's a great place to work. They're going to celebrate you. They're going to purposely invest in you. That's exactly it. You know, it's, if your culture isn't your cheerleader, then, you know, something's wrong and something's internally wrong. You may have good intentions, but you're not carrying it through into the organization, to every little vein of the organization. You know, how are people being treated? Are your hiring managers or your leaders of teams recognizing that diverse talent within the group, or are they going into what I like to call the unconscious behavior that we know to do? It's like, okay, I know to turn right at the corner. I don't even have to think of it. I'm going home. I'm just going straight this way. I'm turning right and turning left and I'm at the front door, right? That's that unconscious behavior. And that can get you in trouble and that suffers the organization. So it's, how do you handle that? I'm a believer in, you know, a lot of people are saying, hey, leadership, you know, top down. I believe in a top down approach. That top down approach is we are going to diarize these conversations. A lot of people believe in, in hitting people in their pocket. It's like if you are not doing certain things towards this DEI agenda managers, then you're not getting that bonus. It's part of your bonus structure. So it's really going for it. So it stays on the top of their mind. People don't like their money hit right? Money's important. <laughs> you know, it determines on that holiday or whatever you're trying to do. So it's kind of thinking in terms of, I need this to be part of the agenda because we want a happy, healthy, diverse culture. We want to stay a leader in our sector. And these are the goals. And then what does that look like? Is there training? So for example, like I didn't like the titles of underrepresented group leadership training type of thing like that. We can come up with better, you know, ideas for this. Like one of our programs is called Ignite. I absolutely love that. You know, it's a women in leadership program. It's like, it's powerful, right? So are we creating, uh, are we balancing out coaching, for example, right? Okay. So we talked a little bit about like, you know, you can just be checking the boxes and, you know, just doing it for the sake of having a policy. How do you evaluate these programs once they're in place to make sure they're having the outcomes that are desired? And it's not just about intending to make a difference, but actually having a real world difference. So how do we see the impact with that, that, that ROI, right? The return on the investment. Well, it depends. So for example, if we take a leadership program for underrepresented people, right? So let's be specific here, right? Uh, a program like that is going to have different modules. Maybe it's going to have courageous conversations as a module. It may have being politically savvy as a module. It may have understanding your personal brand as a module. So what we're then looking at are these key development areas and saying, and the manager taking part in this, you know, they're part of the program, not necessarily coming to the program, but they're involved. They know that this person who maybe have been nominated by them is on the program. Can we see a difference? Can we see the difference that it's made, right, to that person and how they're showing up at work? 
Are they more engaged? Do they seem a bit more happier? Do they seem, you know, I had a young woman, she said to me before the program, everything was like, okay, yeah, sure. Okay. Everything was okay. She was just a yes, young woman. And then since being on the program, she's now, she says she's more pushes back and says, no, I can't do that. So she's showing this confidence. She's showing that my voice is important. I can say no. I don't have to worry that I'm going to lose my job. Right. So this is what the difference is. And then we start seeing, you know, those performance reviews changing. Right. We should see this. And if your team is working really dedicated, say your talent development team is dedicated to the program to be able to see the changes, then I think that's how you'll be able to see the impact. Your people should move up. Your people should be moving. There should be opportunities. You know, now get this. Your people might leave because they've grown stronger and they know it's time to leave. So again, they may not stay and they may go into those positions, but they also may leave a stronger person that it becomes your cheerleader. And that's good too. You're reminding me of the classic argument between the CFO and the CEO. The CFO asks the CEO, what if we train them and they leave? And the CEO says, what if we don't and they decide to stay? you're not going to have an educated workforce, a diverse workforce. But an idea has struck me, and I wanted to run this past you. This is what coaching is all about, right? You help connect dots in people's minds. So you've mentioned investment and you've mentioned diversity, but I think a component of this is, well, you mentioned growth. The leaders you're investing in should grow and find themselves in positions. And so... One way to measure ROI, Lucas and, and KK, jump in here if I'm wrong, is the classic, uh, and I'm going to sound like a math geek, but Y equals MX plus B. What's the slope of that growth? If the slope of your growth is flat and you're investing, then it's not working. But are you growing leaders and are they finding themselves in leadership positions? Not just leadership, but positions writ large. So there's really three components. So as the owner of the complex organization, am I investing in recruiting, in education, in all of the things I might do? And then am I finding people? And then what pace am I at? And if I want to do it more robustly, maybe I need a higher investment or investment somewhere else. No, I think obviously that's going to be subjective to the organization, right? It's going to be subjective. And then you're looking at what are we trying to achieve? How fast are we trying to achieve it? And that's always the thing, isn't it? That's always the thing. We're trying to achieve something faster. So that's why we lean on what we normally do. We would take that recruitment company because we know that they give the results. They bring the right candidates in, right? Because we're trying to reach somewhere. We're trying to make more money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So what's that growth going to be like? It has multiple layers to that. But you should still see growth. I honestly feel as well, your coaching company the coaching individuals that you bring in, they got to be sharp. I know a lot of coaches. I know a lot of coaches, right? They're doing things old school. See, today is the digital age. This old school way of just working for six months, nine months, and not even guiding. I get in trouble for some other coaches hearing me say this. You know, they want to just keep asking questions, asking questions. It's like, no, I, sometimes I got to like, just slam you in your face. Look, this is the impact of what you're doing. You've got to have the strong, everybody on board 
has to be, you know, and I want to say it, they have to be the best. You've got to have performance coaching. If you're trying to get somewhere fast, well, you better interview, you better really sit with each coach. You're saying, you know, I like this coaching company, but I want to talk to their coaches who would be leading on a program like this, who will be coaching on the program like this and have real conversations with them, not just the niceties. Oh, oh, have you done this type of program before? Have you blah, blah, blah. I had a woman asking me that from a major company. I think she got annoyed with me because I thought she's not even asking me the right questions. We want a return on investment. We want people to move the dial. And if they're going to sit in my proverbial chair, then let's push them. So I think you've got to work with the right companies. I think that's it. Point blank period. You've got to get referrals. You've got to say, yeah, the, this group of people or that one, I have a gut feeling that they're going to push. And there's a lot of niceties going on in the coaching world. Like I said, the- no, I agree. I agree. A lot of uh, other things disguised as coaching, too. Oh, that's a joke. I, I, that is one of my bugbears. You know, I watch YouTube. And <laughs> it, it really is. It, it is a bug. Okay. <laughs> it's made the British thing. I've been over here too long. But it's this thing where, where people are calling themselves a coach, and you're not a coach. You're somebody who's done something before, and you're just like a mentor. You're not a coach. You know, a coach gets deep. It was why, why I studied. I did the master's last year. And then finally, we had the, the ceremony this year. But that's why I chose coaching psychology. You know, I want to go deep with you because you can get a coaching qualification, five to 7,000 pounds seven or $7,000, and I wouldn't want you coaching me. <laughs> I want some breakthroughs, you know? So that's my little snobbery moment. <laughs> it's true, though. We need good coaches. We need you know, those who are willing to push in a way that you have a return on your investment. Our traditionist, Lucas, always gets the last question. Okay. And uh, he always asks something you never expect. So I'm surprised <laughs> oh, as well as you. Okay. Um, so we just talked about, you know, you have the psychology degree and you also coach. So I'm interested in these kinds of intersections between different skills and talents. So is there a skill or a talent or a hobby that you have that you think intersects with coaching that is unique for you? Whether it's, you know, exercise or whatever. I weight train, right? I've always been really into fitness. You know, I, I fall off the wagon and be back on it and everything. But I think when you start doing something that takes a lot, you know, it takes serious commitment, serious discipline. I think it was this turning point last year for me which was, how can I talk about transformation if I'm not willing to transform everything that needs work in my life? There was this point and I said, every time I start working out, by week 16, I'm fitting my clothes better. I'm like, I'm done. And then all of a sudden I'm falling back off the fitness thing. And then here we go, six months later, I'm back on. And I was thinking, I can't keep telling people, be consistent, do this if I'm not. I said, let me identify where this is. Where am I falling off? And so then I identified it at between week 12 and 16. And then I was like vigilant. I was like a soldier at the freaking gate. I was like, nah, you are not coming through. And then so when the voices started coming in my head of, oh, you look good. Oh, 
you know, just stay in bed. You're okay. You've got 10 sessions today with the clients. You're going to be given a lot. All of that started coming in and started recognizing it. And this is the psychology and this was behavioral change. And I was trying to see where that behavior, where it was so I could identify that and share that with my clients. So I coached myself into getting my butt up. If I only had 15 minutes in the gym, I would hit it hard in the gym. Now I'm almost at a year consistent. I'm at the gym about four to five days a week. I'm lifting more weight than I've ever lifted. I'm going to be beyond the 12 weeks of looking good. I see muscles. I see things. You know, I'm like, whoo, this is what it takes. So I think the last year, my coaching has changed dramatically because of my own mindset transformation. I'd done a lot of other work, mindset transformation. I'd gone to, you know, Tony Robbins stuff and Eckhart Tolle and, and some other great people that I truly respect and psychologists and stuff. But this was like, let's take it up. And that's why I say you got to choose the best people. You got to choose the best people and invest in the best coaches for your business and have some real sessions and say, can you give me three sessions and come to the table with something and see what they show up? Are they just nice? Because nice doesn't change anything. No, this is great. There is that interwoven personal, professional in our work and in our lives. Yeah, this has been tremendous for me. I've learned a lot and I'm going to take a lot of what we've talked about and really study it. Well, that concludes this episode of Building a Coaching Culture. I truly hope that this episode was helpful to you. If it was, be sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Maybe stop and give us a rating or a review and share this podcast with someone who might find it helpful as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.